Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I want to begin this podcast by apologizing to you. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, I asked you to listen to an album, and I have a feeling that you didn't enjoy the album. Well... All right. I have so many feelings about this particular album, but I just want to say right off the bat that the best description I have for it is a British term, rubbish. It is, it, it put it down the bin. Isn't that what you guys say over there? Put it in the bin? Bin it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. To use a word that's not among the seven words that you can't say on TV, it's shite. Pretty much. So if you haven't already guessed by the title of this episode, we're talking about Roger Waters' new version of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Now, think about, I don't know, Michelangelo, 50 years after he paints La Gioconda, decides to do a cover version in watercolors or a cubist version. Think of... I don't know. James Joyce decides to do a first-person noir version of Ulysses, that sort of thing. I got one. I got one. Imagine Paul McCartney redoing Sgt. Pepper on a Casio tone. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it's this is a piss-poor record. It, you know, let's be fair. I think the production quality and the sound quality is quite good. I listened to it in Dolby Atmos. It was immersive, as we like to say, but... The problem is... There's only one? His <laughs> <laughs> name's Roger. Why would he even want to do this? Why would he... This is a crime against humanity. Well, I think we're talking about it, and, and if you haven't heard it yet, um, I think a few things to understand about it is, one, the musicianship is not great. It literally sounds like he recorded it in his basement when he had time off. The drum machine has no, no feel to yep. it at all. Yeah. Um, the keyboards are are basic, <laughs> generic default keyboard sounds. Yeah. Um, and and the other part, the part that I found most alarming, that most people will find alarming, is that he talks through most of the music songs that you would think of as as being instrumental on the original Dark Side. He speaks over, and he has this awful voice. He just, it's, you know what it sounds like? He's listening to music with headphones on and singing along. That's what it sounds like. And it's, it's very annoying. It, it sounded to me like, it sounded to me like he took an AI combining Tom Waits's voice and Leonard Cohen's voice and had it speak the things, the banal things that he wrote. And one of them is a story of a friend of his who got cancer and died. And there are some interesting stories, I suppose, if you're a Roger well, Waters fan and you know about these things and... You know, you can get your head around what he's doing here, but for me, uh, it, it, none of that stuff meant anything. It was annoying. It, it was annoying. It detracted from what little musicality there was. The biggest musical missing piece is the guitar. He hates Dave Gilmore with such a passion, he did not want guitar at all. There might be a couple of notes here and there, but there's no guitar. There's no soaring guitar music. Also, there's, in the Great Gig in the Sky, you know, I would put money on the on him just humming some of that arpeggio that uh, yeah. what would you call it a cadenza scat singing and, then, and running it through a vocoder or some device yeah. because it 
it it certainly is not whoever was that sang it on the original. It's nowhere close yeah. to that. Yeah, no, it. You'll it's... be disappointed by listening to any of the songs you know very well. I mean, I wanted to listen to Money right away because that's the song that most people know if they know anything from from this particular album. Sure. And it is. There's nothing redeeming in it. There's just nothing redeeming in it. <laughs> and there, as I said, there's no soaring guitar. There's no David Gilmour vocals either. Yeah. You know, David Gilmour did most of the vocals on the original, and he has a very powerful voice. Uh, uh, Roger Waters refuses to well, use that. Well, I, I just find that the places where David Gilmour's guitar is so powerful, like in Time, for instance, getting rid of that is. You must hate yourself to want to release an album like that, to take what's really a classical... I mean, if rock becomes classical music, this will be the equivalent of Mahler's Third Symphony. You know, this big, big, huge thing that marked a change, that marked a change in music. And I'm going to link back to our episode on 1973, where you suggested that there was a schism in rock music. And it's true, because there were so many records that came out in that year. I like to do these list things. Right. To talk about because it sets the tone. 1973, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions. Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On. King Crimson, Locks, Tongue and Aspic. Lou Reed, Berlin. Bob Marley and the Whalers, Catch a Fire. David Bowie, Aladdin Sane. Elton John, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Paul McCartney and Wings, Band on the Run. With the hypnosis cover that we discussed recently, Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells, Renaissance, Ashes Are Burning, the New York Dolls' first album, Aerosmith's first album, Bruce Springsteen's two first albums, one in the beginning of the year, one in the end, the first Leonard Skinner album, pronounced Leonard Skinner, Tom Waits' Closing Time, I think that was his first album, Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly, okay, not rock, but hugely popular, the Allman Brothers Band, Brothers and Sisters, Frippinino, No Pussyfooting, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Brain Salad Surgery. Imagine being Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. They hear on March 1st, Dark Side of the Moon, when it comes out, and they say, oh, no, what do we do next? Right? So, yes, what they did next was Tales from Topographic Oceans, which was an album that was overloaded with pomposity. But we have Billy Joel's Piano Man. I mean, there are so many career-launching records in 1973, and records that set half a decade of musical ideas. The prog rock stuff of Dark Side of the Moon, Genesis selling England for a pound, ELP's Brain Salad Surgery. Those records in 1973 set prog rock to go on until, well, punk came along and prog rock died of... Well, not, but not just prog rock. I think all the other things you listed, too, really just were juggernauts. Um, sure. You know, every every album you mentioned has a, a descendants. Yeah. That, you know, that that create that became 70s and 80s music. So the idea that you would want to retouch up or revisit any of these records and remake them or as he calls it, what does he call it? A redo? A re- Redux. Re- Redux. Why would you want to redux Dark Side of the Moon? Why would you want to redux any of those? You know, there was an interesting project that Gang of Four did maybe within 10 years. They did a record called Return the Gift, and they did a bunch of their old songs, but they didn't reimagine them. They just played them as they were playing them on recent tours. So you heard the evolution of the song, and they just decided to record that. I suppose. And it's a, it's a good record. It's a good curiosity. If you're a Gang of Four fan, you'll like it. You won't dislike it because it's so different. You'll appreciate it because it's a little, it has 
other things in it. But it's the Gang of Four. This record is not Pink Floyd. It's Roger Waters. It's not the three other members. It's not the brilliant studio work. It's a bunch of unknown background musicians. In fact, he didn't even play much on the album. He played one bass solo and a bit of synth. He touched the keys a little bit. You mean someone did that? You know... Made that for him? Someone was... He paid people to produce that music? He paid people to record that, yeah. The way he wanted it, I hope, because... Yeah, yeah. See, he must be jealous, because when people listen to the original Dark Side of the Moon, they hear the guitar, they hear the saxophone, they hear the solos. Do you know anyone who cares about bass solos? You know, he was the bass player. No one listens to the bass player. (laughs) Well, He's in the background. As a composer, I'll give it to him. He wrote a lot of good stuff. You know, the wall is entirely his. And of course, he's been living off it for 43 years-ish. Another example is like, I don't, I think I've said this before. I don't know any keyboard players that I knew growing up that said, I want to be like Richard Wright. (laughs) It's like, you know, (laughs) nobody did. These guys were... The three of them separately are kind of, eh, they're okay. Or the four of them, I should say. But together, they did their own thing, and, you know, that's their legacy. Separately, none of them have ever really taken off. David Gilmour has some nice solo albums. Roger Waters, I suppose, has some good solo albums. Nick Mason has done some some crazy things. Um, But... This this takes the cake. Does Roger Waters have fans? What does he mean? Is there a group? He sells out shows around the world. He sells out he sells out stadium shows where he does the wall, or at least he used to. There was a film, sort of half documentary, half concert film of him doing the wall, but him you know, he's obsessed with this thing of his father being killed in World War II, right? And that was the main theme of the wall. So there was this film where he's going to places where his father had been, like the cemetery in France and different places, interspersed with bits of him performing The Wall Live. He's been living off that album since, well, since Pink Floyd broke up. I guess in the 90s he started. He did record his own version of it, I think, um, he, or at least a live version. There's a video recording of him performing it. It's like he that's what he's been doing rather than, hey, I'm creative. I've got enough money that I can sit around in my studio and make new music, but I'm not going to because tens of thousands of people come to see huh, me play the wall. That's too bad. I, I wonder. I mean, I'm very surprised. To be fair, for to be fair for younger people, the Pink Floyd they know is the wall. Another brick in the wall. It's got that sort of almost disco beat in it. It was a top forty song. One of the rare. I guess. I guess there were some. There was radio play for a couple of tracks from. Dark Side of the Moon, Money, Maybe Time. There was radio play for Wish You Were Here. But other than that, the songs were too long on Wish You Were Here. Well, there was a there was a radio. <laughs> we used to play Pink Floyd just so we could say, see, we play Pink Floyd. That's pretty much the. And so anything you could manage. So Money, you're absolutely right. That was, I mean, everybody played that. Time and uh, and Breathe and things, things like that, they would. They would play like a medley. But that's if you're a classic rock station. If you're a top 40 station, the only song you would ever play is Another Brick in the Wall. Yeah. With the children singing in it because it's so poppy and cute. And Money is so iconic that I often hear the beginning of that in documentaries about finance. Right? Because that that ka-ching sound, everyone knows it. It's that iconic. It's a song about money. People like money. So it's it's a great it's it's great a song. song about money, but but on Roger's version, it's just sad and boring. Oh, it's and, very dirgy and Yeah. 
Not even doesn't even feel like it's about money. It doesn't. It feels like it's about him. The whole album feels like it's about him. That's what it is. Oh, very much he's, so. He's well, not- like I said, it's like he's sitting there listening with headphones on and just kind of singing to himself. Yeah, imagine him sitting in an armchair across from you, <laughs> reading the paper, listening to Dark Side of the Moon and going, <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So for a long time, I didn't listen to Dark Side of the Moon. It was so played out. I'd heard it so many times. And about a year, year and a half ago, I went back to it when the Dolby Atmos version came out. And it was like, in some ways, it was like hearing it again. You take time off and you come back to it. And I listened to it again this morning. And it's almost, I don't want to say it's miraculous, but there's something about that album that it is so perfect from beginning to end that it's it's quirky with the the voices and the weird sounds and all, but somehow it works. It just, everything fits like Sgt. Pepper, the whole Sgt. Pepper album, right? You have a lot of albums by bands where, eh, you know, one or two songs aren't great. But here, from beginning to end, there's something that just works there. And it's no surprise that it's been so popular. It's like the fifth best-selling album of all time. I think it was on the Billboard charts for 30 years or more, something like that. Sure, whatever. I mean, it, it's it's beyond trying to quantify how popular it is. It's just, it is, you know? Yeah. But you, you have to wonder the egotism of wanting to take down a classic by, as you say, mumbling over it, sitting in an armchair, reading the newspaper and mumbling over it, is really something special. Now, he's no stranger to controversy. He has said many things about the band. In fact, one of the things he has said is that the band, that he was Pink Floyd, that the other people had no input at all. And of course, uh, you know, if you think about just just David Gilmore's performances. Yeah. Just David Gilmore on guitar, even if nothing else, right? So the band gets back to him recently. In fact, David Gilmore's wife, Polly Sampson, tweeted in February, Sadly, Roger Waters, you are anti-Semitic to your rotten core. Also a Putin apologist and a lying, thieving, hypocritical, tax-avoiding, lip-syncing, misogynistic, sick with envy, megalomaniac, enough of your nonsense. David Gilmore, quote, tweeted that, saying every word demonstrably true. Yep, I guess so. How do you, how do you, I mean, it's, it's, it's a total lack of self-awareness that, that he's wealthy, he's got fans, he's, the royalties off Pink Floyd albums must be, he must own, you know, more property than the Queen. Well, maybe not. Queen's got a lot of property. I don't know why. Some of these people just need to retire, sit down and shut up, right? Well, yeah, I, I mean, the other guys did, well, well. Richard's dead. Yeah. Um, well, Nick Mason just in the past couple of years came out with his own band, Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. I think they played mostly the early pre-Dark Side of the Moon stuff. Which is fine. I mean, that's great. Yeah. I'm all I'm all for that. Resurrecting some of yeah. that older stuff that doesn't get a lot of appreciation these days. Yeah. Pre-Dark Side stuff is yeah. uh, really... I mean, my favorite... Actually, my favorite Pink Floyd albums are the ones before Dark Side. I like metal. I like Adam Hart Mother. I like Uma Guma. Metal's great with that 20-odd-minute version of Echoes that's yeah. the perfect, perfect space music. Right. And that's the that's Pink Floyd to me. When, and when Dark Side of the Moon came along, I said, well, this is, this is pretty good, but it's not... One of these days, I've got to little pieces. <laughs> you know, that's the stuff I like. Um, I'm very surprised that he, he did do this. As you, you, you said at the beginning, you know, you apologized to me. The great thing about this record, it is, is such an odd curiosity. 
it is just, I mean, I would never own it to have it to say, hey, you want to listen to that Roger Waters record. But it is going to be a milestone of a curiosity. You know, why would a person do this? Uh, you know, we, we, you've already talked about the other classic records that came out at the, at the same time as the original. And that, you know, why would you mess with perfection or, you know, at least what's regarded as perfection? I don't know if Dark Side of the Moon is perfection, but not everyone agrees. But but as rock albums go, I think it's pretty darn perfect. He could have done what he wanted to do without using the vehicle of Dark Side of the Moon. It's almost like it's he's saying, here, listen to this new version of Dark Side of the Moon. But he's got his own stuff his own propaganda or whatever his own point of view layered on top of it it's like you have and, and you have to hit, listen to him talk and why didn't he just write his own music he wouldn't get the press yeah dark side of the moon saying it's a, a re rethink of dark side of the moon means that even the mainstream press is going to talk about it a new Roger Waters album means that, well, he's actually got to compose music and the music press will talk about it and he'll get three out of five stars on average and, you know, it'll be forgotten. Whereas here, newspapers talk about it because everyone knows Dark Side of the Moon. Come on. People who buy newspapers are people our age who were young when that album came out. So this is, you know, well, this is what you do. Don't try to fool us old people. Speaking of old people coming out with new albums, we're recording this on the 16th, and in four days, the Rolling Stones are coming out with a new album, Hackney Diamonds, and there's a story behind it. Hackney's a part of London. The first song is Angry. I mean, it's called Angry. It's not an angry song. It's called Angry, and it's not a good song, but I think the video is pretty cool because they've got this video with Sidney Sweeney sitting in the backseat of a red car driving down, I don't know, Hollywood Boulevard or whatever, and showing these billboards all along. And each of the billboards has footage of the Stones back in the day when they were young, when they were doing, you know, real music and hits and stuff. And so it's kind of a way of looking, they're, it's they're 80 years old, they're looking back, they're doing it a little bit better than Roger Waters did. I'm, I'm going to listen to the album when it comes out. I'm sure it's going to be serviceable. I'm sure it won't be like Roger Waters' Dark Side of the Moon Redux. I'm sure it won't be great. It's got a bunch of duets with well-known singers, Lady Gaga, who else? I don't know. The usual gang of idiots, I guess. No, 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 no. It's much more than that. Well, it's, yeah, but it's, it's, it's your token uh, pop guys, right? Right. Just It's like, the, I mean, I thought you were going to mention the Dolly Parton record, which is another... Uh, sort of grift on, on old for old people, but no, it's got Paul McCartney playing bass guitar on one track, Elton John playing piano on two, Lady Gaga doing one track, Stevie Wonder keyboards and piano, Bill Wyman is on one. So I thought there were more singers, more well-known singers on this. Well, that's the thing that I mean. They get these names and they say, "Listen, we brought Billy back into the band," and. You know, Billy probably sat in a studio where in his neighborhood and listened back to the tape and said, here you go. Here's my baseline. Now stop bothering me and probably has to do a couple of PR events. And that'll be and that. it's got Charlie Watts on two tracks that apparently they had recorded before he passed away, which means that they've been working on this for a while. My guess is that when they were rehearsing, they would do a couple of songs, they'd lay down some tracks and each time you know they do a little bit more without the kind of without the idea of going to a studio for three months to make an album well don't forget they, they've got they probably have hours and hours of songs that were never released um you know every time they do an album can, they can do you can you imagine how wonderful it would be to get a rolling stones collection of 
outtakes and songs that were never released. I don't think they've ever done it. Bruce Springsteen released one of those 20 years ago or something, like five CDs worth of outtakes and things that were never released. The Stones must have a lot, even if it's just them playing some old blues song, you know, acoustic guitar, harmonica, and Jack Daniels, right? I would. That's what you and I are, are always complaining yeah. about, is where is the record of them just sitting around playing some tunes? Yeah. I don't think we're ever going to get it because it's not going to, they need to create a blockbuster. They need, you know, they need big, they need shiny and uh, they're never going to go back it, to It's a shame again. because lots of band, even the Grateful Dead's been doing that. In the past few years, they've been releasing demos and outtakes from their early albums. Dylan's done it all through his I want to say all through his career, starting in the 90s, I think, the bootleg collection, where it's demos, alternate versions, outtakes. And with Dylan, it's really interesting because you can have one song that's played in totally three different styles, slow, fast, jumpy, melodic. And, and you, you listen to the sessions of the very earliest albums where he hasn't even decided how he wants to do it. And as he narrows in on it through the different takes, of course, you don't listen to those different takes too often, but it's interesting to listen once. That's such an interesting technique that some of the more popular artists do that some of the mid-level bands also release, you know, these huge deluxe collections of, look, here are some demos and here are some couple of live things um, as if to cash in on see how important we are. But there are no archivists that are listening to that mid-level stuff. We want to hear, you know, we want to hear it with the moment of creation my favorite is the Bob Dylan doing like a Rolling Stone. Um, yeah. You know, that's a lot of fun to hear how that evolved. And that's interesting. But I don't need to hear a couple of demos by, I don't know, uh, Stone Temple Pilots or, you know, any. Uh, or even Joy Division. Any, right, exactly. A after, after Ian Curtis committed suicide, a few years later, they released an album called Still, which had a bunch of demos and some live tracks. And it was really disappointing because they had only had, to, had two studio albums. The live stuff was, I want to say mediocre because they weren't that good a live band. And the demos were, well, they're demos on cassette tape. <laughs> yeah. and they weren't great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a hit or miss. So if you, if, I mean, if you're a, a nut about a particular band or a particular kind of music, I suppose these are all touchstones. But for the average person, for, for regular music listeners, this is the kind of thing that they don't, are not interested in. It's interesting because this does happen in jazz a lot, and particularly with Miles Davis. Like his record in a silent way, the song that's the sidewalk song that's called Shh, Peaceful. It's the same thing with the, it's, it's the beginning, the middle, and then the beginning again spliced together. And that's not how it was performed. It was the producer, Tio Macero, who did that. But when you listen to the complete In a Silent Way sessions, it's totally different. It's this a ambient groove. And it's, I, I think it's a lot better than the studio album version. But the common denominator between Miles Davis and Bob Dylan is Columbia Records, where they recorded everything and they kept the tapes. Whereas indie bands don't necessarily record everything, don't necessarily keep the tapes. They were like, they would have a specific number, they'd write it down. And because this was for billing musicians, session musicians, this was for paying for studio time against, you know, advances and all that. So they were very meticulous. So Columbia artists from back then have a lot of tapes. Um, Frank Zappa is notorious for having a huge vault of virtually any, any note he ever played was recorded. Pretty much. So there's tons of stuff. There's a an album coming out, a collection coming out in a month or so. Uh, I think it's Overnight Sensation. It's like four discs of everything. Demos for the sessions, outtakes from the... 
the, the sort of thing that Zappa fans will relish because everything is different. There's no yeah. attempt to do it the same way again. It's like, let's see how it comes out this time. Uh, and, and so that's interesting. And it's the same thing with the Dylan. And it's the same thing with, with like I said, these these upper echelon musicians. But uh, OK. But anyway, Roger Waters, what are we going to do with them? <laughs> what are we going to do with Roger Waters? We're going to ignore him until he goes away. If he, I really wish, I mean, if he's such a good songwriter, why doesn't he write some songs rather than kind of squat Dark Side of the Moon? That's what it feels like, that he's allowed to do it. You can't prevent someone from recording a cover version of a song. That's just the way copyright works. But you, they have to pay you. So he's paying whoever owns, I think Pink Floyd... Bands and Descendants still own the rights. I think they haven't sold them off yet. So he's paying himself and David Gilmore and everyone else for whatever royalties, which won't amount to much on this record. Not this one. No. <laughs> Maybe he should try uh, uh, Animals. Maybe he should do that one next. Well, but see, <laughs> so I'm going to link to my article that I wrote on my blog this morning about how Dark Side of the Moon was rogered. If you don't know what that means, look it up. And I said, I hope he doesn't do this to Wish You Were Here or Animals, because they are so guitar-heavy that what is he going to do? Is he going to, like, hum the, the, the guitar part of, you know, dun, 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 dun. hum the guitar part of Shine On You Crazy Diamonds for 18 minutes? That would be just lamentable. <laughs> okay, next track picks. Please. One of my favorite works of classical music is Bach's composition, The Art of the Fugue, or The Art of Fugue, or Art of Fugue, Die Kunst der Fuge, which my German being not too great, I would assume it should be The Art of the Fugue, because whatever. Anyway, some some albums call it The Art of Fugue, Art of Fugue, etc., etc. And I've been listening to a number of versions of this recently. I've been listening to viola da gamba ensemble and harpsichord and piano. And one of the most interesting is Angela Hewitt's 2014 recording on Hyperion Records, Hyperion Music, which is now available for streaming. Not all of it yet. They're bringing out the music slowly. They started with the pianist. I think last week they announced that the cellists and the violinists, so they're curating this stuff gradually to the streaming services. Angela Hewitt just gets it in a way that a lot of pianists... So. Bach wrote this for any keyboard instrument. He didn't specify an instrument. He didn't specify it was harpsichord. Like some things he wrote, this is for a two-manual harpsichord. So you can play it on piano, harpsichord, clavichord. You can play it for a string orchestra or a full orchestra. And it has been done, The Art of the Fugue, for full orchestra by, I think, Carl Richter did it. And it's this massive German string sound, this, you know, loud kind of sound. But Angela Hewitt has this sort of post Glenn Gould sound, the light touch of Glenn Gould that she often has, but with a lot more ornamentation that you usually hear, either on piano or on harpsichord. And I just love listening to it because it's a familiar piece of music, but it's like you're hearing her commentaries through the ornamentation that most people don't play. And that gives it a different flavor. It's based on one theme. If you don't know what a fugue is, it's a way of writing classical music with a theme, and then you invert the theme, and then you reverse it. It's a mathematical game, and it's actually quite hard to do. There are fugues in three parts and four parts. 
it gets really complicated, but as you listen to it and you hear this same theme throughout the entire piece, throughout an hour and a half of music, the entire piece, the same theme comes back into different works, but in different ways. It's a really fascinating way of having variations on a theme. You don't really hear much music that is a fugue in variations anymore. So Bach's Art of the Fugue, Angela Hewitt on Hyperion Records. What about you, Doug? Well, you know, I've been spending so many weeks picking music that I've never heard before. I thought it was time to pick something that I actually know very well and that I haven't heard in a long time. And I landed on Hopkorv by Hot Tuna. I love Hot Tuna. I know Kirk loves Hot Tuna. I used to listen to them all the time. Big college band when I was when I was going to the U. Hopkorv was their last album, actually. Their seventh album was uh, done for Grunt Records, which was the Jefferson Airplane label. And from what I understand, the fellows in the band, and that would be Jorma Kaukonen, Jack Cassidy, and to some extent their drummer, Bob Steeler, didn't like the fact that they weren't getting as famous as Jefferson Airplane or even the Starship. And after this album was recorded, they kind of went on hiatus for many years. Uh, Jack Cassidy, the bass player, went on to form some groups with other people, and then Yorma went around and did his solo acoustic stuff. But uh, this album isn't that much different from their other electric albums. They, they all kind of sound kind of the same. There's always a couple of traditional blues songs. There's a couple of covers. There's some wacky psychedelic Yorma stuff. This album is pretty good. In fact, I would even venture to say it's my favorite. If the house was on fire, I'd grab this Hot Tuna album first. It is Hopkorv, Hot Tuna, and it's my next track. This was episode number 267 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Don't forget to support The Next Track. That's really important by making a regular donation via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. We really appreciate it. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.